This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. As was mentioned, I'm the Chief Executive of the Retrofit Academy. I've been in this world of retrofit and specifically skills and knowledge in retrofit for just over a decade now. And it's incredible. I mean, being somewhere like this with so many of you uh, in such influential roles, being interested in the subject, because as Brian and I know from speaking to many empty rooms over the first half of that period, it wasn't always dust. But it is, uh, we, are, we are seemingly at a tipping point with it. And God knows it needs to be. How many homes are there in the country? There's somewhere between 27 and 29 million. No one can ever give me an authoritative number. It's somewhere between that number. And the vast majority of those homes need to be retrofitted, um, some very urgently almost all of them by 2050. And that's not to mention the non-domestic building stock, of which there are many more millions with many more uh, and more complex challenges. And that, of course, is just this country. Globally, both the challenge and the opportunity is absolutely huge. Retrofit is what this government often describes as a problem. It puts it up there with the NHS and other things that it doesn't quite know how to solve at the minute. And it's doing some really good things, finally. Where you go, government? Um, but it is a wicked problem. And without solving it, cracking net zero remains a pipe dream. So in this session, we're going to consider um, five things. Firstly, what retrofit is um, and why it's important. Secondly, where are we now and how concerned should we be about our lack of progress to date? Thirdly, why has there been so little progress and what the barriers are? Fourthly, what the solutions and the case studies are that we'd like you to learn from? And finally, really, what the big opportunities and, and um, practical steps that you, we want you to go away and start doing. So we'd like to, rather than just have an interesting chat, we'd like to influence what you go away and do. So I'm sure that will be a fascinating um, uh, session. Now, I, I'm going to ask a series of questions. I'll be putting those questions to some specific speakers, but I'll keep an eye out for anyone else who wants to come in. Just, just raise your hand, please, and I'll come to you. Uh, in, when it's your turn to speak first, if you could just say a little bit about yourself, the role and why you are expert in this subject matter, that would also be appreciated. So, uh, Mahesh, um, I'm sure the train's caught you out a little bit. Thanks yeah. for struggling on. We're going to start with you and a, a very basic question uh, to start with. What is Retrofit? My name is Mahesh Ramanujam, President and CEO of the Global Network for Zero. For 15 years, I've been uh, working on the decarbonizing built environment. Uh, most recently, as the President and CEO of US Green Building Council, running the lead program for more than, more than 280 countries and territories. Uh, it's great to discuss about this important topic. And uh, retrofit to me is a process that you go through with a building to change its structure, its sustainability attributes, the performance, to make it better, stronger, and more sustainable and healthier. Now, uh, from the perspective of retrofit, why it's important is because this is the message that we all need to bear in mind. A building that has been demolished and reconstructed with a brand new building, even if it is a brand new green building, it would take about 80 years for us to reverse the impact of the demolition of that building. So this is why retrofit is super important. And uh, hence, transforming the existing built environment is more important than ever. That's fantastic. Teresa, uh, uh, coming to you, could we just, just give a very clear definition of what retrofit is and perhaps what it isn't? What it isn't, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, retrofitting, as the word says, is fitting something that wasn't there to begin with in a building that generally helps it f perform better. Um, technology has moved along very fast, so the systems that are now available on the market are much better than those before. So retrofitting, meaning also replacing the systems that were in place to begin with, with, with new ones. I mean, retrofitting the built environment, it's extremely important now more than ever. 
because we have done and we're doing great steps in decarbonizing the grid. But when it comes to existing building stock, uh, we're not doing very much. We're not doing very much because we there are lots of dots that need joining and we haven't started joining yet. So when you talk about built environment in general, you've got um, commercial, residential, and then city scale, and they all need a different approach. Commercial properties need to be more flexible, rethought of as perhaps residential hotels or whatever, all of them together in the one use. Residential, how to tackle that. Nobody, I mean, the residentials belong to their occupancy, occupant. They sometimes don't have the means to refurbish their home. So there is a target that they should meet, that they, they cannot without any aid or without looking at perhaps you know, for, for authorities to start looking at more of a larger scale to enable them to do something. So there is a lot of work that needs doing and a lot of dialogue that needs to be had. Okay, well, that leads to on to our next... This. Thank you very much. Sorry, that, that leads on to our next question. I'm going to come to Jack uh, first on this one. Is 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 in you know, the size of the challenge has been laid out there. Now, where are we now? Um, and uh, just if we could perhaps put that in the context of your specialist area in, in around non-domestic property in the UK. I'm Jess Saunders. I am a associate director at Faith and Court specializing in uh, retrofits at decarbonization in the uh, sector. Uh, and I think, you know, where we are with that at the moment, we, we've made a huge amount of progress. Okay, thank you. Can, is that working better now? There we go. <laughs> so I, I, th I think we, we are making progress. We are making steps forward. I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of sort of optimism in the industry. I think we've got a long way to go. Uh, we've, we've got real challenges, I think, around um, the heat decarbonization. I think that's the biggest one that we're missing. We've, we've heard about some of the decarbonization of the grid that's happening at the moment, which is fantastic. And I think we're on a really good trajectory there. Uh, but how we decarbonize heat within buildings, whether it's domestic or, or commercial, I think is going to be a huge, huge challenge, particularly when you look at the uh, national grid as a whole. I think the, the capacity within the grid to allow for decarbonization of heating is, is really not there. Um, so there's a long, long way to go in that space. Um, but I think we are getting more and more momentum. We're getting, you know, the industry is kind of getting behind it. We're getting more data. We're understanding that data better. We're able to apply that to more and more buildings uh, and, and we're able to use that to really kind of push this forward. So I think it is, it is building momentum. The supply chains are getting stronger. Uh, we are moving in the right direction, but I think there's also a long way to go. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, Brian, um, you're as chief executive of the Federation of Master Builders. Many of your members are focused on the domestic market. So considering UK housing, uh, where would you say we are now in terms of retrofit? So in terms of um, small builders, I represent the Federation of Master Builders. It's a trade body for small building companies all across the UK. These are the builders doing the home extensions, new bathrooms, new kitchens. A fantastic market there for small builders if the conditions were right. So people, when they're having out that new kitchen, they should be thinking about actually insulating the walls because we have got one of the oldest and leakiest housing stocks in this country. 28 million homes in this country, potentially all needing some form of retrofit. And the government's approach, uh, not just this government, but the previous government has been very piecemeal. Some of you may remember the Green Deal under the coalition government. Uh, it was more expensive to actually use the Green Deal than go to the local bank to get a loan. We've had the Green Homes Grant Scheme, which was introduced and then taken away a couple of years ago. And all this has really created a lot of uncertainty in the building industry, but also for con uh, consumers, not knowing who to go to to actually get the advice to improve their homes, not sure who to go to and having the work done. So there's a massive need for p political leadership in actually challenging uh, the need to upscale our existing housing stock. It should be considered as an infrastructure project. 28 million homes, it would take 20 years plus to actually transform our homes. And that's why the industry has been calling for a national retrofit strategy, a 20-year plan to actually do this in, uh, in a phased approach. Because our homes contribute 20% of the UK's carbon emissions, We've got a legal target to reduce it to zero by 2050. We're not going to do that and, unless we start now. Okay, thank you very much. Now, Simon, I'm, I'm giving you a bit of a wicked problem here. I'd like you to talk to us about the global picture on retrofit across all building stock. So where are we globally? Um, we're not doing very well. We're not doing that well here. We're not doing that well globally, to be really honest. 
And part of the problem is lots of people are making declarations and you're absolutely right what you just said. And you're absolutely right that the industry together has been calling for, for you know, um, a, a national domestic retrofit strategy. But there aren't that many strategies about and there isn't that much knowledge about. And if you go to America, it might be interesting at the edges, but it's pretty rough in the middle. If you go to Africa, they're building mega cities at vast speed over the next 70 years. And I don't think yet they're able to learn from the mistakes we've made because we haven't learned from the mistakes we've made. So there is a lot wrong. And the reason there's a lot wrong is it's very, very dynamic. Um, 10 years ago, we didn't talk very much about embodied carbon. We talked about operational energy. Um, now the grid's going green, the whole logic is being reversed. So we're less worried, although it's still important about operational energy, and we can see a lot more carbon in how we build. If the grid goes completely green, you might say some of the over-designed, over-retrofitted buildings we're doing would actually be putting too much carbon into the embodied operation. So that's dynamic. If it's dynamic and it's global, it's pretty difficult to get a grip on. I've been to the last two COPs. There's lots of announcements. There's lots of governments standing up and saying the end is nigh. But actually, we're now in the phase where people have got to get on and do it. And to do it, we need to share information better. So nationally, we need to share information better. It is quite possible that some of the builders doing certain retrofit strategies that in 10 years' time, we might be retrofitting because we decided they didn't actually work that well and they created difficult internal climates. So we've got to create a quicker feedback loop. We haven't got a carbon database. So what we all say we're going to do and what we actually do, we're not doing. So we need better post-occupancy feedback. And then we need to get internationally accepted standards. So one of the good things happening in the UK at the moment uh, is the net zero uh, carbon building standard is looking that it's trying to set a reasonable standard so more people can enter regardless of sector. And then they will feed in their, you know, their ambition and their actual achievements. And then they will be capturing their data and sharing that data back. So it's, it's kind of data and numbers, not emotion and declaration that's going to do it. So if I'm honest, it's, as this room shows, it's a massive task. However, one way of dealing with it is for everyone, as you said, to take something away and do things. Otherwise, which is why I don't like the doom and gloom scenario, because it's a bit like one of my daughters said, well, you know, I'll probably be dead by then anyway. It's not a particularly good scenario <laughs> to be putting out. You've actually got to say to people, you know, this is an amazing planet and how are we going to work with it? And most of what we've got to do is stuff we've forgotten. Land management, water. The reason we have problems with flooding in the world is we're putting people in places where we never built houses. We're normally putting the poorer people in places where we never built houses. And the reason we didn't build houses there is they were vulnerable to natural disaster. There, you know, there is, there is still, there's always been a lot of natural disaster. The trouble is there's more people and they've been put in vulnerable positions. So it's a mega, mega task. As you've said, there's undoubtedly global momentum, but we've got to turn that momentum into achievement. And we've got to be quite smart about sharing mistakes as well as successes. Okay, fantastic. Well, a fascinating answer. Thank you. So moving on now, so we're going to look briefly, I think we've touched upon some of this already, but the question of why we haven't made more progress so far. So as Brian mentioned in the UK, we had a stab at this in the last decade. It was one of the most epic policy failures, I think. Um, it would go in, a, sit well in the um, blunders of the British government handbook, I think, uh, the Green Deal. So so um, why haven't we made more progress so far? Um, I'm going to come to Mahesh on that first, please. Yeah, I think uh, it's very important to recognize for the last three decades, the green building movement has done so much of effort to transform new buildings. So you can confidently say that if anybody is building new today, they are almost building a green building, even if they don't want to declare it. But existing buildings have been long ignored, but people have not made the connection that 40% of emissions comes from the building sector. And existing building is a very important piece of the puzzle 
to actually close the gap because 97 to 98% buildings are existing buildings. And importantly, a building, once it becomes operational, even the newest building becomes an existing building. So continued focus on existing building has not been there sufficiently as such, number one. Number two is that is, when you really look at it, because they have not made that connection, no more transformative principles and actions, and most importantly, results have been produced and demonstrated, or at least shared, it won't exist. And data and ROI remains a bigger challenge. As much as we have data, but there is no clear articulation on return on investment, and how actually it funds existing building projects. The existing building projects have challenges in terms of number one, uh, they are working on the operational budget, not on the capital budget. Second, they have to constantly balance between low occupancy to high occupancy because there is uh, inertia between these two uh, boundaries of how an asset performs. And last but not the least, I think we have traditionally prided ourselves in making bold declarations to your point, Simon, and really making big, bold commitments. But then when it comes to follow through, there is very limited support on the ground. And most importantly, verification and accountability standards have been grossly ignored because we have not tracked people from declarations to implementation so that we can get to acceleration. So these are three significant barriers. And uh, it's very, we all touched on UK. I have a global perspective, but I'll touch on a very simple data point. UK has 25% uh, of the homes that were built before 1919. So very old buildings exist in the UK. One third of the commercial properties are almost legacy properties or heritage properties. So when you think about existing buildings, legacy and heritage projects create a, a new different type of dimension of challenges that you cannot anticipate in the normal existing building. So these are some of the reasons people are not made progress. We're, we're going to come on to heritage buildings lately, but it's a very, very uh, good point. The, um, the minister responsible for energy security and net zero in this country recently made a statement. This is for you, Doretta, by the way, just to give you a bit of warning. Uh, recently made a statement that over the last, over the course of this government since 2010, uh, the, the number of homes that had reached EPC ban C had gone from something like 17% to 40% um, and was very happy about this. Is that a measure that we should celebrate and feel positive about? Does that tell us that we are actually getting on with retrofit perhaps without even realising we're doing it? I mean, it is it is, it is true, but it, I mean, the, the, there are a lot more homes in the 40%. There's about 70 or 80% of, of homes that are in band C, I think, currently. So the stock that we need to look at to retrofit is much, is much bigger. But to answer a bit the previous question, I think um, it needs to be really a joint effort. Like authorities need to put something in place that allows private finance to be deployed and individuals to, 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 to see the benefits of investing into um, retrofitting their homes. There, I, I am a firm believer that there are win-win situations Retrofitting is a great business opportunity, and if we don't see it like that, it will never happen. So there are there are case studies already, and hopefully there'll be more, where the investors get a benefit, the occupant gets a benefit, the environment gets a benefit. So it's but it only comes together if it is you know when the different bodies or the different sectors start talking to one another. You know, public governments with finance, with architects, with with um, the actual general public. Okay. So there's more of that okay, that needs thank you. to happen. Thank you very much. Um, now, um, turning to Brian and Jack, the uh, we, we, we sort of touched upon a couple of barriers there around demand, collaboration, and so on and so forth. What do you think the primary barriers to making more progress retrofit are? Uh, Jack first. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think there are a number of additional barriers. I think whilst the supply chain is getting better, I still think that we have supply chain issues, um, both in terms of people who can do the work and also people with the right skills to be able to deliver that work. So I think that's that's a huge challenge that we've got to overcome. I think the funding piece can't be underestimated as well. And um, the, the sort of balance between CapEx and, and the sort of life cycle costing and how that how that model and those funding opportunities work, I think is a real challenge for retrofit um, and, and creating commercially viable products, uh, projects. I think the final thing I would say as well, I think is, is around um, going back to the supply chain, thinking about our supply chain ethics. Um, you know, we're relying on a lot of different uh, products, you know, for example, PV panels, lithium batteries, they rely on cobalt, they rely on lithium, a lot of which is mined in, in um, you know, Africa and South America, where the, the sort of welfare standards in that mining aren't very good. And fundamentally, they're also finite resources. So, you know, it might be renewable energy, but actually they're not, you know, renewable products always in terms of how we're getting there. So I think there's a huge challenge there 
in terms of how we continue to innovate to, to make sure that the renewable options that we're bringing forward are ones that are genuinely renewable. And Brian? Uh, well, you made a very good point about coming together because that's essentially what is needed, I think. We need the political ambition, set the framework, the long-term policy, but we need to make sure consumers have the information that they need. And at the moment, uh, EPC says a case actually for improving the quality of information. And as part of the national retrofit strategy, we were arguing that for each home should have its own passport. The information about the energy rating of your home, but also the measures you could have um, done to your home to improve it over a period of time. So consumers need better information. Within the building industry, there needs to be a big step up in terms of upskilling. Um, but there needs to be that demand. And at the moment, many small building companies are not moving into that sector because they're very busy doing tra uh, traditional work. And that's a mistake really in the uh, medium long term because we need to get more builders doing the retrofit work, but we need to create that demand. And to create that market, we need to introduce some financial incentives. In the heat and building strategy that the government introduced uh, for the owner-occupied market, it was very limited in terms of ripping out the gas boiler and putting in a heat pump. Very uh, little was said about the fabric of the building. And as we've heard earlier, most of the homes um, that need to be treated are built before 1919. We need to insulate the fabric before we th start thinking about putting in the heat pumps. So this joined up approach is absolutely critical. And what I'm seeing today is just a series of piecemeal initiatives, which won't address the problem that we're facing. And that's a challenge. I think for the uh, general election coming up, all the main political parties should be agreeing a long-term plan to actually tackle the 28 million homes. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to come back to this question of fabric first later, see if we do have consensus around that. We're going to move on now to uh, solutions and case studies. Um, just before we do, just to remind you, there is a Slido in operation. You take a photo of that thing, whatever that thing, a QR code, um, and the questions come through to me here, and I will. we have plenty of time at the end where I'll put as many of those questions as I can to them. So turning to solutions. So looking at those barriers, uh, we've identified the reasons why perhaps we haven't made as much progress as we want to. Uh, each of the panelists selected a particular area that they feel uh, needs to form part of the solution. We're going to give each panel member a few minutes to talk uh, about theirs. So I'm going to come to Mahesh first on this. He's going to talk about standards and education. Yeah, I think uh, the most important thing uh, is to really have a standard, a set of best practices that existing buildings can follow very easily. I um, believe Simon touched on the net zero carbon standard, not trying to do everything, but trying to give the minimum for people to get started on existing buildings. So I think every existing building must at least have a roadmap, a baseline, and most importantly, understand what it takes to actually arrive there. That is what you can use to educate your stakeholders, owners, occupiers, and of course the operators. The second part of that is to really think this in an incremental way because transforming an existing building is not going to happen like a new construction project. So you have to have the patience to develop a plan that will happen over a period of time, but you're always advocating for daily continuous improvement because I advocate for a million incremental consistent steps rather than one moonshot or two moonshot goals that may eventually happen. So that is the second part. And third is data, 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 ROI data, operational data, and most importantly, occupant satisfaction data related to a building that has been retrofitted or not. I believe that these three aspects are very crucial to get started. And most importantly, is to actually stay on the track and really achieve the goal uh, with a long-term view. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, coming next to uh, Simon, please, on radical reinvention. Um, yeah. Look, let's be clear. What we're talking about is something that we've sort of invented in the last century, which is whole-scale demolition, mass consumption, and reconstruction. Historically, buildings were continuously recycled and rebuilt. So the throwaway society is a sort of post-Second World War, oil and gas-fired consumer boom. So Doretta City, Mantua, I mean, they've been retrofitting for about 1,500 years. So this wouldn't be a new conversation. So that's important to remember. Secondly, we invented suites of technology that changed the way we perceive how we should live, right? So we have a thing called air conditioning. We all get used to kind of constant air temperature. We don't put on big coats in the winter. 
And actually, we should accept much different gradients. So those are some fundamentals we've got to do. And so my point about it is whether we're designing a new building or making an old building, we should be thinking about, there's a great saying, not mine, which it was, long life, loose fit, low energy, yeah? The building has a long life. Loose fit, not so it's useless, but so that other people can come in and use it in different ways. And then the low energy is both in the adaptation and the operational energy, you're driving down consumption. So we recently won a test of time award for a university in Amsterdam. It was a million square foot chemical lab designed in 1968, built in 1980, original architects still alive, quite a lot of politics. And our job was to turn it into a social and behavioral sciences building. We had to re-engage it with the city by throwing some of it away. We had to kind of retain all the lift cores and stairs. We kept all the structure. The reason we could reinvent that building as a microcosm of the city around and reconnect it to the city was because it was generous. It wasn't squeezed. It had volume. And volume works in a very simple way. One, we're growing a bit, so it caters for that. Two, you get different air temperatures within a room, within a volume. So it might be 28 at the top, but it's only 24, 25 in the summer, you know, at head height. So we should be thinking about that, whether we're retrofitting or, or building new, we should be thinking about this idea of a pie chart of the building. And that pie chart is actually, where do you spend your energy in actually designing it? About a third of it's in structure. Yeah, about a third of it is in the cladding and services, and the rest is in the fit out and occupation. We need to think about that. We need to think about less dramatic change of buildings. So you're not continuously coming in and starting again. You know, the whole world of consumer fashion has driven us, you know, into a difficult place. You know, so the, the circular economy is quite interesting. You can go to Alaska in London and find amazing things that no one wants that you couldn't afford to build now. So I think this is a really exciting and promising time, but you should always be thinking about, you know, I don't need an extension. I just need to change the way I live in the house. You know, there's a tremendous rush to build as a solution. The solution might be like a school. You know, schools are only used for 8% of the time of the year. So you have a school or a community centre and a library. Why isn't the community centre and the library in the school? Why isn't the school working from 7 in the morning till 10 at night? Why are the sports fields closed? Yeah. So there's so many things you can do to make everything we've got work harder. That's the future, whether it's new or old. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Uh, Doretta, would you talk to us about technology, please? Ah, yes. To pick up on what you were saying, data uh, is, is crucial. But what's more crucial is how you read the data. And not only how you read the data, but how do you then communicate your findings to someone else? I mean, a lot of our clients, they, they, you know, they've got lots of data that are given to them by ESG companies, by their, you know, investors and whatever not, but they struggle to visualize the data. So what does it mean I need to achieve that target? But how do I get there? So luckily, um, the BIM technology, the, the, the BIM technology has evolved so much that from a BIM model, we're now able to extrapolate quite a lot of information. Um, also uh, relative to the embodied carbon, which is again, crucial for road mapping, how you get to net zero. So yes, I would say BIM is definitely, at least for our sector has been a massive step forward. And again, it's a tool. So it's all about how you use your tools, but I think majority architects, all of our colleagues are starting to, to use that tool well in getting as much info as we can to then start defining what the, as I said, the roadmap could be for each and every building because every case is different and every country is different. What's achievable faster in the UK is not achievable, just the same in Saudi. Saudi might have, you know, a different kind of low hanging fruits that one has to kind of try and get to. So yeah, technology is key to achieving that target, whether we like it or not, <laughs> we need to Especially use it. Every building in every location is different. It's yes. fascinating. Um, Brian, in terms of policy, what, what do we need from policy? Well, going back in terms of policy, I do think there's a need to actually implement a national retrofit strategy. We need a long-term plan. Um, it, but in the absence of that, the, gov um, the industry is actually stepping up. So this year, the industry has come together to create a national retrofit hub. Uh, so it's been a small 
group of people have come together to try to coordinate what is happening across the country because there are some really good examples of retrofit in um in Manchester, Birmingham, and uh, the Welsh Government are taking a strong lead in terms of retrofitting social housing. This is all happening in, to some degree in isolation. So the National Retrofit Hub is actually trying to signpost, share best practice in the absence of the government actually showing the leadership that it's going to be needed actually to push this forward. And I think that's a good way actually to get the industry thinking about the market opportunities. Um, we know from research that we did many years ago that for small builders, the potential market is worth up to six and a half billion pounds a year. We just need to get the framework right. And that means creating demand. In other European countries, uh, Germany and France, they've introduced a range of incentives to kickstart the retrofit market. We've seen, as I've mentioned, very, very limited help there for uh, the homeowners in this country. What, what there is, is mostly on the social housing, which is good, but we need to get that into the only occupied sector bearing in mind that's two-thirds of the housing stock. So there's a lot to be done. Industry is stepping up. The one thing that does worry me is about the skill shortage um, in the building industry at the moment. We are struggling to recruit the bricklayers and the carpenters, all the people you, that should be part of the retrofit market. 800,000 people will be leaving the industry over the next 10 to 15 years. So we've got to make sure that we've got people coming into our industry that they share that vision that actually retrofitting is about making the world a better place. It is about changing the, the way where people live and work. And as you were saying earlier about actually making better use of the buildings that we have, we always have done that. Master builders, they were the ones who built most of the properties up until the 20th century. We need to somehow re-engage with that and think about the long-term lifespan of, of our buildings. And that's where I think retrofit has a great opportunity uh, to learn uh, from previous experiences, but also from other international um, comparisons. So I, I my message, I know I keep repeating it, but it is about joining it all up because at the moment it is so piecemeal. Fantastic. And finally to Jack on soft landings. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's the perfect uh, handover really. For, so what I want to talk a little bit about is um, from a lot of the projects that we've worked on in the past, one of the big challenges we see and one of the reasons why retrofit quite often fails is because there's a big disconnect at the moment between the people designing and, and, and bringing in the retrofit solutions and those who then actually end up using that building, occupying that building and are responsible for the facilities management, et cetera, going on within those buildings. And I think it ties across a lot of the points that we've talked about here, but it's about really bringing that collaboration in right across from, from, from design to in use, thinking about the whole life of the asset, thinking about where all of the data points can come from in that journey making sure that those are all being tracked as you move through the process. I mean, if we look at the, the REBA plan of works, how do you make sure that at each stage, as you move through your design and delivery, the design is, is adhering to the original goals of the project, any KPIs and metrics that you set up against those projects are being met, that the building is going to be fit for purpose uh, and it's going to have that flexibility as well. So as, as you move through the process, it's really important to bring those stakeholders right the way through on that journey. And I think we've seen a huge disconnect at the moment. And, and often it's the reason why buildings then don't operate very well. Um, you know, I take school examples. We do, we do a lot of work with local authorities where they've done retrofit in small primary schools. And you might have, you know, a, a caretaker there who's got a hundred other things to think about and do at the same time. And if you don't bring them in on that journey, you can, you can make the building as efficient as you like and you can put in decarbonized heating sources. But if they don't know how to use it and they just turn the heating off and open the windows because it's too hot and too cold, then, then you know, we're, we're, we're really kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. So I think, you know, government soft landings is, is the, the sort of, I suppose, public sector term for it. But, but really, it's about bringing that connection and collaboration right the way through the design process and using that to kind of set the right targets, identify the right metrics, make sure we're thinking about that end user. Also thinking about how that actually kind of then follows on. So if you sell that building, do you have all of the information in a good format so as the person who takes over from you understands how that building works understands how to operate it and, and we don't end up sort of in a situation where the building is performing badly just because it's changed hands in the future so i think i think there's a huge opportunity with with that kind of approach to really bring that collaboration through and make sure that what we're doing is, is has got longevity and is going to be successful in the long term okay thank you very much so what we're looking for in this final section with the panel is, is, is you know, to frame the opportunity for those people who haven't put their hands up yet. 
Why should they get involved? What are the practical things we want them to go away and do and be part of that solution? So we'll go in order of your seat, Mahesh, please. Yeah, I think uh, it's very important to recognize, particularly after COVID, climate change is the single largest existential threat of our lifetime. And retrofitting existing buildings is not only an opportunity and challenge that we need to overcome, but it is very essential to bring the vulnerable up to the level that we all live and really give them an opportunity to have a better quality of life and well-being. Now, if we can't do that, then I think uh, we're not doing well by our current and future generations. And the second important thing we have to recall and re remember here is that without the retrofitting sector acting up on time, there is no way we can get to net zero. So we can build the world's greenest buildings by the next 20 years, but we still will not be able to bridge the gap that we need to account for meeting the Paris Climate Agreement. So that's the primary reason we need to stay focused on this uh, net zero journey for existing buildings. Okay, fantastic. Simon? Um, I think there's a different attitude to how you do things. So when B Sky B were winning all the races with the help of athleticism and drugs, they talked about tiny gains. And the danger of this world we're in is a huge amount of investment in tiny gains. You mentioned fabric first. So to me, on a simple domestic level, have a more varied wardrobe and allow your temperature gradient to change. Now, you know, that's a very serious point. Houses are overheated now, and we all expect to walk around in a constant 21. And it's a bit boring. It's like living in America where the weather's the same. So allow for seasonality, change your wardrobe. And remember, all your technology in the cloud isn't in the cloud. It's in yeah. um, you know, big data processing sheds consuming vast amounts of energy. So some of the things we think are liberating, phones are also immensely damaging to, to one's own psychology, just like emails. So change your, change your outfits every season. Use technology less. Fascinating. Thank you, Director. I will continue to change out outfits every season. Yeah, for, for me, the, the solution lays in the in-between across the different the different sectors. Just walking around the, you know, the show that there are the companies looking at the heat maps uh, to see where the stranded assets are. There are companies investing into those those assets without really knowing how they perform. And then that you, you don't once you know it's not performing, you, you, you need to go to another, you know, another body like an architect or engineer to understand what's really wrong with that building and then to someone else again to visualize what you need to do to fix it. And then to another one again to know how much you need to spend to fix it, only to realize that your payback time is not within your lifetime. But if we all meet halfway, so there is a lot more of this conversation between the different parties that kind of join hands to try and resolve the issues. And, and then obviously the, the, the authorities being part of the party, um, it would, um, I think there okay. would be a lot of solutions that people are, would be more likely to embrace and set on the journey, the journey and start making some positive, positive change. Okay. So we need to invite more people to the party and get them worse. Get yeah, them have Brian. a bigger room maybe. Next bigger room, time. yeah. <laughs> and it sounds, Brian, like you might be the host of the party with your national retrofit hub. Rick is certainly um, hosts the party. Builders are very good at uh, uh, parties. I just want to go back to the first point about climate change. That's why we need retrofit. It's not an option. We have to do it. We will not bring down the carbon emissions unless we improve our existing housing stock. So that's the fundamental reason why it's got to happen. But also, we've seen over the winter the number of people in fuel poverty not being able to heat their homes, and that mm. often sometimes gets forgotten. We need to make our homes better places for people to live in. And I take the point about changing your clothes, but for some people, they're not walking around in 21 degrees. They are in unheated homes and suffering as a result of that. And then the third bit would be reflecting back on the building industry. It presents a huge opportunity to raise standards in the building industry. There are too many programs about cowboy builders. It's not surprising because anyone can be a builder in this country. There's no licensing or registration. Retrofit work will require accreditation of building work and that will drive up standards in the building industry and that's desperately needed. So I think the retrofit agenda is going to benefit uh, society and the economy on so many different levels. What we need to do is get started and get it moving quicker. Um, I think it is changing. Over the last couple of years, we're seeing a lot more interest. General election coming up, we all need to be shouting about it. We need to make sure that our politicians are putting it in their manifestos and they're really seriously committed to a long-term plan. 
Fantastic. And finally to you, Jack. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I completely agree with everything that's been said. I think there's some, some fantastic uh, advice there. And I think really what I would what I would add to that is is to embrace the data. Really, really think about your buildings, understand how your buildings are used, um, really know them well, and then come up with a plan. And I think one of the, the advantages of Retrovit over uh, demolition and rebuild is you don't have to do it all at once. Um, you know, you've got that opportunity to create a life cycle plan. You can look at this up until 2020, 2040, 2050, um, whatever target you may have or objective you might be trying to reach. And, and I think that, you know, data can really help you to do that. Understand how your buildings work, understand what the life cycle of that piece of equipment is or uh, or how they're being used. And then think about coming up with a plan for that building that's long term. You don't need to do it all tomorrow um, and you can you can kind of prioritize. You can look at aligning your financial planning to your retrofit plan and, and, and you've got the benefit of time to a certain extent with retrofit. Obviously, you know, that being said, climate crisis, et cetera, we need to we need to get on with it. So don't don't wait. But equally, you know, you can be strategic about this in a way that demolition and rebuild doesn't give you the opportunity to. Fantastic. It's um it's good to be able to say after the the pain of the last decade that British standards were introduced in this country in 2019, which forces us to do many of the things that we've just talked about quite rightly. Um, it forces us to create those retrofit plans. It forces us to involve design professionals and in fact to do design on retrofit, which is pretty important. It forces us to ventilate property properly when we make buildings airtight. So um, we've taken a huge step in the right direction there. So some great advice there from, uh, from our panel. We're going to come on now to your questions. Um, I'm paraphrasing a few of them in one go here. There's a lot around technology. I'd like to answer this question in two parts. So the first time I'm going to, I want the speakers I'll come to, I want to think about domestic property. The second will be around non-domestic property. Okay. So in terms of domestic property, do we have a, uh, a common suite of technologies that should be common to most retrofit, uh, retrofitting most homes so are those technologies well understood well proven and can we share what they are in terms of retrofitting technology into property so the measures that we're going to install are there a common set of measures that most retrofits you would now expect to feature as we go about retrofitting those well, yes there are but i think the, the the utilities companies there are already quite a lot on it and they are themselves trying to retrofit into the existing properties ways of monitor monitoring energy use uh, which is helping a lot elderly people, for example, <laughs> because they, um, whether they like it or not, not they, they, they get this uh, tech installed and helps reducing their bills. So all they need to understand is their bill gets reduced and they're happy. And meanwhile, the, the properties and you know, achieves a standards of performance. The same applies to social housing, for example, which is a large part of the building stock. So those have been monitored. Yes, technologies are available and they are being used currently which is great. But then again, going back to your point, unless you start insulating the envelope, um, yes, you can optimize the, you know, the energy use, but uh, it gets to a point where to really jump to the next level, you need to, to do That's, some I don't, we need radical... To know, we need to know this, the information, um, because our homeowners need to know that information. Going back to the building passports for each home, yeah. we need all this collated so it's easily understood and people know what is best in terms of um, improving their homes in addition to the fabric first which we talked about fantastic thank you very much in terms of non-domestic property jack i'll come to you on this um what could you comment specifically on the role that things like um hydrogen and carbon capture and sort of those sorts of approaches to decarbonizing might play in in those sorts of properties yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think hydrogen is it is a big question. Um, it's one that we're still wrestling with as a country. We don't have a good hydrogen policy yet. Uh, we don't really know where that's going, but I think it's there's there's definitely uh, opportunity for hydrogen to play a role, particularly in in kind of uh, more industrial contexts. Um, I think that there's um, a, a huge suite of technologies that we can deploy on these types of projects. I think carbon capture is one of them, uh, but I think really that offsetting carbon capture piece needs needs to come last. You know that that's that's the lowest lowest um, step in the chain. I think you know you need to look at your behaviours first. Look at the no cost measures you can you can employ. Um, you know, put it wearing the right clothes, not opening the window and having the heating on, etc. Uh, you know, then then looking at the interventions you're going to be making. So whether you can improve the fabric performance of that building, make it more thermally efficient, decarbonize the heating source, uh, increase your electrical efficiency with things like lighting. Lots of standard technologies that we have deployed. 
Um, and then I think you end up in that offsetting and carbon capture space um, from, from, from a kind of commercial building, typically. I think industrially, it's, it's, it's um, not completely my area, but industrially, I think it's slightly different. You know, we've got certain industrial processes creating concrete, uh, et cetera, which, you know, where you're going to get CO2 as a byproduct of those industrial processes. And I think that's where carbon capture, again, has a really important uh, role to play, making sure that products that we do need, and obviously we can do what we can to minimize the use of concrete, replace timber, you know, in the case of steel, et cetera. Um, but but I think carbon capture has definitely got a place to play, um, but but it should really be a last resort in, in the case of most retrofit. And you should be looking to get your building as efficient as you can before you start worrying about offsetting and, and uh, carbon capture. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Mahesh, we've talked a bit about um, energy performance certificates. Love them or loathe them. Um, I'm sure other countries have different methodologies. I'm not an expert in that area, but um, the criticism of EPCs and those sorts of approaches, how big of a problem is that in reality? Should Are these things that we should be basing decisions upon or are they almost incidental to making the right decisions? I think uh, it's uh, there are there are so many best practices around the world that could be replicated all around the world. That's one of the profound things I've noticed uh, looking at global projects. Uh, the strategies are replicable. Most of the standards out there almost provide those strategies. They, that how are you going to implement it at the right price, at the right cost within your timeline? And that's where the real challenge comes. So the technology itself, particularly when you talk about like uh, energy efficiency related actions that you take, be it related to your daylighting design that you uh, that Jack touched on, or be it related to your uh, using the dependency on fossil fuels, or for that matter, really improving your indoor air quality or changing the building insulation or the building orientation related to the, the first the things deep technology in and deep this there is a, a lot of uh, variation there now where we have seen issues in the marketplace is that people want more data to prioritize those strategies so the real challenge comes is that how do you prioritize these strategies and then really decide on what goes first and what goes next so that you can eventually get to the goal so i would say that uh, around the globe there are there are good technologies that are available pretty much replicable Okay, thank you very much. Simon, if you were leading, if you were a mayor of a major city and you were trying to drive forward with retrofit because you believed it's the right thing to do, how would you, what, what would your sort of approach be? What, advi- what piece of advice would you give those city leaders on, on, on what they should do first? And uh, could you give any examples of projects that you've worked on that you could point to as the way forwards? Um, I think one of the things, you got to remember, this is big picture stuff you're talking about, tax, so we talked a lot about uh, regulations, but we have tax on existing buildings, VAT. So you rethink that, you've released, you've changed some money off the government, but you've released some money for, for the domestic project. I think we need to think laterally about sharing. So we're doing a large office building. Office buildings are net producers of heat. So we're able to dump that heat into the nearby local authority public housing. You know, and it's that, it's, so it's that kind of thing. Technology, you know, amazing technologies around, but I think the great philosopher, architect Cedric Price said, technology is the answer, what's the question? I think we're in danger of going, you know, all our cars, if you've got a car, and most of us do, fantastically overperform their use. You can drive them at 20 miles an hour in London without getting a ticket, yet you can go from naught to 60 in eight seconds or whatever. And there's this huge computer that no one ever looks at. And we don't want to drive certainly our domestic or our commercial spaces into that place. It's to me, we should be looking more at caves than oil rigs. We are in danger of actually building more and more complexity. And even the most sophisticated building user is not interested in the technology of the building. They're interested in what the building does for them and their teams. So we've got to be very careful. I still think, you know, a heavy mass, heavy mass concrete 19th century warehouse is cooler conceptually and probably physically than the buildings we're building today. So let's not obsess with new ways of achieving what we you know what we what we think we want. Let's start looking at what did we do in history, and actually, we've relied far too much on technology as a driver. You know, so yes, let's have the internet, let's be communicating through other means, you know, and hybrid working, all these other interesting things, but let's actually make buildings simpler 
I mean, on a new, naturally ventilated office building, we've had to put a traffic light on. On a green day, open the window and you're actually making the building work well. On a red day, open the window and you're throwing energy away. But that's pretty simple stuff and people can get it. But we've got BMSs and M&E kit, 40% of our building budget. None of us know where it goes. It's a big black hole of technology. So technology is not the answer. It's the, you know, the technology of passive design in all its forms that we should be addressing. Okay. I agree with you about BMS systems <laughs> as a previous user. Um, I think we're now moving to any closing remarks. So we've covered, I've tried to cover as many of the questions as possible there. Um, I would like to bring us back a little bit to that final point of what we want someone to go away and do. And you made some excellent points, but can I just ask you, having reflected on the whole conversation in a sentence, what would you like people to go away and do or share any other thoughts you have with us? Uh, and again, we'll go in order. Sorry, Mahesh, you keep getting picked on to go first. Now, for me, it's simple. Establish a plan and stay the course by taking incremental daily consistent action. Great. Wow. That was, you're really good at that. Thank you, Simon. Think about how you can do very, very little to improve the quality of what you're doing by conceptualizing things. How do you want to live? What will make it better? Can you do that without, you know, adding anything to the embodied or operational story? Fantastic. Doretta? Yeah, for me, it would be how to do a lot more with very little. I mean, sustainability is, do the, for me at least, is doing the best you can with what you have available. Just as simple as that. So if you start with that frame frame of mind, then I think we could, we could do quite a lot more. Fascinating. Brian? Yeah, very simple for me. Go out, be a champion for a long-term plan, a, a national retrofit strategy. Go and speak to all the politicians, get it in the manifesto. Let's see it in the next government. Fantastic. And Jack? I think for me, the, the big thing is go and engage with your stakeholders. Understand your building users and get to know them and get to know what they need and what they want and then come up with a plan that fits that. Okay. Well, I was at a, a, a briefing with the um, shadow minister, effectively the shadow minister for retrofit uh, for Labour, who was talking about a 10-year, 10 billion pound a year retrofit program across all 10 years, all types. So perhaps we may get some of those things that, uh, that Brian in particular has been calling for. Just, uh, just let, the last thing to do is to thank the panel. Thank you very much. A round of applause, please. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.